Section 4 of Frontier Humour in Verse, Prose and Picture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Adrian Stevens. Frontier Humour in Verse, Prose and Picture by Palmer Cox. Sam Patterson's Balloon. Last night... While a party of us were sitting around the table in the cabin of the New World, talking about the aviator and aerial sailing generally, our conversation was interrupted by a dark, raw-boned hoosier who had entered the cabin shortly after the steamer left her wharf. He kept squirming in his chair for some time and was evidently anxious to take part in the conversation. "'Oh, you say, boys,' I'm Sam Patterson, he commenced at last, and if this yer dish is free and no one had no objections, I'd like mighty well to dip my spoon in. All turned to look at the speaker, even the fat old gentleman who, during our conversation, had not taken his eyes from the Christian Guardian he was reading, stretched up and peered over the top of the paper at Sam. Before anyone could reply, the hoosier gave his chair a hitch nigh the table and went on. I say, boss, he continued, addressing his conversation to me, perhaps because I had just been expressing my opinion. I don't go a pickin' on navigating the air. They ain't no need of talking and gassin' about crossing the Atlantic or any of them foolish venters. I happen to know something about ballooning and understand pretty near what you can do and what you can't do with one of them fellers. I'd a plaguey sight rather undertake to cross the ocean in a dugout than venture in one of them tricky cobwebs. You can't depend on them. They're like a flea. When a man thinks he's got em, he ain't. Perhaps you are misled by prejudice, I ventured to remark. No, I ain't nother answered the hoosier. I speak from experience. I've been there. Oh, you've given the aeronautic science some attention then, I said. An inventor, I presume. Well, no, I don't exactly claim to be an inventor, he replied. I reckon I followed on the old plan, excepting in the material used in constructing. "'Did you ever make an ascension?' I asked. "'Well, yes, I've been up some,' he answered dryly. "'Have you ever been very high?' inquired the fat old gentleman, who seemed to grow interested. "'Perhaps not so high as eagles or turkey buzzards fly, but a mighty sight higher than barnyard fowls venture.' "'answered the hoosier. "'You see,' he continued, "'I was staying down to Orleans once for about a week, "'and there was a professor had a balloon in the park hitched to a stake, "'and he was hesting people up the length of the rope for two bits an head. "'I stepped into the cradle that was hanging to it "'and went up the length of the rope. "'I liked it pretty well.' I went up three or four times and made considerable inquiries about the manner of constructing and inflating as I was collating to rig up one when I got home to Tuckersville. When I got back, 
I told Sal what I was bent on doing. She tried pretty hard to get the notion out my head, but was stuck there like a bear to a cow's tail. I told her it might be the making of us, so after a while she'd gin in, and her silk was too off hard expensive. Sal gave me a lot of bed sheets and helped me sew em together down in the cellar. We put it together down there, cause I didn't want any of the neighbours to know what was up, until I could astonish them some fine morning by rising above the alcaboodle for once looking down on some of them that were snuffing round and trying to look down on me mighty bad. I used a rousing great corn basket for the cradle, and arter she was all ready for inflating, I had my life insured, cause I didn't want Sal to suffer by any of my ventures. Then I went to Sal Spence, the lawyer, and had him draw up the writings of a will, and while he was doing it, he worked the balloon secret out of me, and wanted me to take him along. I told him twas pretty risky business, and that he'd have to run some chances, as I was collating on seeing what clouds were made of before I came down. He said, them were his sentiments exactly, that he always had a great anchoring to get up there and see what sort of spongy thing they were, anyway. I didn't object much. I reckon the sheets were good for it, though he went over two hundred, but I calculated he'd do it instead of ballast and be company besides. So I took some bed cord and slung another corn basket below the one I was going in, and after dark we owed the great floppy thing out into the backyard, and arter we got it histed up on the stakes, we commenced building fires under her to get the gas up and getting things ready generally. After sunup, we had her all set, ready to step into. Spence had his sketchbook along, calculating on taking some bird's eye views, and I had a bottle of tea, calculating to empty it going up and fill it with rainwater while up there. The thing was a walloping and rolling round the yard, mighty impatient to get off. I itched her first to the grindstone frame, but she was snaking that around the yard, and the dogs commenced such an all-fired yelping and scudding round and watching of it through the fence that we were obliged to put em in the cellar, cause we didn't want the whole neighbourhood attracting by their barking. Then we fastened the balloon to the shed post and left Sal to watch her while we were eating a snack of breakfast, but he soon after we heard Sal a-shouting that she was a-going off with the woodshed. So we ran out mighty lively, and had no time to spare neither. I jumped up and caught one rope, and Spence got hold of another. We couldn't fetch it down till Sal caught hold of my leg, and between us three we pulled it back again. She gin a sort of puff and came down putty sudden when near the ground, and one of the posts of the shed came fair onto the back of a little pet hog that was rooting round the yard and knuckled his back down into the chips, leaving his head and hinder part sticking up. 
He commenced such an uproarious squealing, you could hear him more'n two miles, while Spence and I were fussing at the ropes to unloose her from the shed. She took another sudden start up again and shot away from us quicker than scat. Sal happened to have hold of a rope at the time, and up she went into the air, scooting like a rocket. Sal was a plucky critter. Shoot me if she wasn't as full of grit as a sandstone. She could have let go of the rope, but she wouldn't. She wanted to fetch the corn sarn down again and was bound to cling to her until she did. Blow me, if I didn't think for a while I was going to lose the old woman. There she was, hanging on the end of the rope, hollering like a whole regiment charging a battery and trailing and swinging about without any notion of letting go. We had a lively time of it, getting her down again too, now I can tell you. I jumped over a fence into the garden and snatching up a rake, commenced to scrape at her, and finally the teeth caught in her dress, and then I had a putty good hold so long as Sal was good for it. Spence got hold of another rope that was dangling around, so between us we got her down the second time. Then I swung out to Spence. Spence, says I, climb into your basket and let's be off or the whole town will be here and stop us going. So we climb into our baskets and flung out Sal's flat irons that we had for ballast, and up we shot like a spark in a chimney. I hollered back to Sal to put the hog out of pain and stop the squeaking, and the last I seed of her as we went round the gable, she was a-whacking him over the head with the back of an axe, and he was hollering worse and worse. The wind took the balloon over a swamp back of the village where no person seemed to see us, and then the world began to drop away putty nicely. Twant long till I heard Spence calling out, mighty scared, like, I guess, Sam, you might as well land her and let me get out. Are you afeard, Spence? says I, just that way. No, he answered, I ain't afeard, but I reckon my family would be mighty uneasy about this time if they knowed where I was and I began to feel purty salacious about them. This year thing is coming like lore, I says. When you're into her, you've got to keep going till something gins out. She hasn't got a rope a-holding her down now, Spence, and as for your family, I reckon they're a mighty sight safer than you'd be. So, if you have any spare solicitude, you had better be tucking it under yourself. Sides, I continued, I ain't studied into the letting down part of it half so much as the rising. Jerusalem, he shouted, I thought you were familiar with the whole thing, or I had soon as thought of going up in a whirlwind. I fancy I do know considerable about it, I says. Then why can't you stop her right here, he hollered, looking up, putty pale. I calculate we've got to keep ascending while the gas holds out, I answered. Thunder and lightning, he hollered, 
just that way. And what are you going to do after the gas runs out? I reckon, says I, we'll come down again. A flukin? he asked. Perhaps so, says I. I calculate we'll come down faster than we're going up. But I'm hoping to catch an undercurrent of that air that will sweep us along and let us down sort of gently. Just as we were talking, something gin a whopping crack overhead, and she began to drop down by the run, putty lively. What's that? shouted Spence. I think I hear a sort of tearing noise up there. Ain't something ginning out? I reckon the old woman's sheets have commenced to gin out, I said, kind of careless-like, and beginning to feel mighty nervous all to once. On looking down, I seed Spence was a-craning out of the basket and looking down, just as pale as could be. Suffering pilgrims, he shouted. Can't you throw out something, Sam, and lighten her a little? She's dropping straight down, like an aerolite. I ain't got anything to throw out, except in the tea bottle, and that hour is almost empty, I says. I calculate we've got to take our chances, and if you hain't forgot your childhood prayers, you might as well be running of em over, for things are beginning to look mighty scary just now, I could tell you. Pretty soon I heard him a-mumbling to himself, and I allas aloud he was praying. We were now about steeple-eye, as I had expected. The wind caught us and began to sweep us around pretty loose as we went walloping over St. Patrick's Church. Spence's basket struck the spire and was a spilling of him out like a lobster out of a market basket. I peered over and seed he was almost gone, so I hollered, Go for the spire, Spence. It's your only chance. He seemed to be of the same mind, for as I spoke, he was a-grabbing for it and managed to get hold of one end of the weather vane. I reckoned if he had got hold on both ends, he'd have been all right, but things were getting desperate and he had to take what come. The balloon riz some when he got out and as it was moving off, I looked back to see how he was a-making it. He was hanging there like a gymnast, a kickin' and a wormin', and the steeple a-rockin'. But he was too awful heavy. He couldn't draw himself up nohow. Pretty soon, the tail of the fish gin out, and down he slid along the steeple like a shot coon down a simp tree. Fortunately, he struck the roof, and over it he rolled, clawing and a-scratching the shingles as he went. But it was all go and no war, as the boy said when he was a-sliding the grease banister. Old Father McGillop was just coming out of the vestry door after matins as Spence came a-scootin' over the eaves and down kaflummix right on top of him. This, you see, sort of broke the fall for Spence, but it spread the distress. He was so heavy and come down with such force, he disjinted the neck of his reverence and shoved it so far down into the body that his ears were resting on his shoulders. They had to get a shovel to dig him out of the ground. 
and Doc Willoughby was a-fussing over him more than five hours, a-yanking his neck out of his body and pressing his ears into shape, and... Stop now, said the fat old chap, who was worked up to the top notch of attention. Do you mean to say he lived after his neck was dislocated? Well, I reckon, boss, said the narrator, as he took a fresh quid of tobacco... I ain't made no such unreasonable assertion. I was saying they hold his neck back and put his ears in place again. Or rather, one of them, for the butcher's dog, ate t'other one before the sexton could get to it, so that he might make something like a decent appearance in the coffin. Soon as Spence went over the eve, I lost sight of him, for I was driving putty briskly over Kent's corn patch, and as I came sweeping down by the widow O'Donald's, she was in the yard getting an apron full of chips. I reckon she heard a burn sound overhead, cause she looked up, and when she seed the balloon, she gin a squall and cried out something about protection. I reckon she was calling on the saints, but had no time just then to listen. Before she'd gone many steps, she dropped, and I allowed she'd gone down in a fainting fit. I was a-driving and a-drifting over the village like thistledown for more than two hours, and the dogs were a-barking, and the men and women a-hollering and a-running arter it wherever it drifted. The barnyard fowls wore a-cracking and a-screaming chulicans, didn't I make a rumption amongst them, though? You'd think that there were thirty thousand orcs and turkey buzzards a-hovering over the village by the way they scattered, against the winders, behind stunt walls, into the wells, under lumber piles and currant bushes, such a scrounging, a squatting and scooting I never did see!' Parson Jones had thirteen lights of glass smashed by fowls battering against the windows trying to get in, and Dud Davis, the blacksmith, fished seven dead ends, two turkeys, a guinea fowl, and two small pigs out of his well next day, where they sought refuge and were drowned. Dad Kent gave me six traces of good seed corn next fall. He said, barn the killing of Priest McGillop, it was the best thing that ever happened in Tuckersfield. He said I did more for his crop than if he had a scarecrow standing astride every ill. There wasn't a crow flew within two miles of the village for more than a fortnight, and by that time the corn was grown so they couldn't pull it up. Pretty soon the balloon came down about the house high and drove over towards the depot. I was hoping she'd catch on the telegraph wire, but she skimmed over like a swallow over a fence and immediately riz up tree high again, where scrape, slap, slash, she went into an old pine that stood alone in the field. I was scratched pretty bad, but hung on to the limbs and after a while slid down the tree, leaving the balloon hanging in the treetop. Great turnips! If old Tuckersfield wasn't down there in five minutes! 
There were young uns running around half-dressed, with corn dodgers in their hands, and women with babies in their arms. It was like a dogfight, only, as the fella said when describing the nigger by the mulleter, it was more so. The train was delayed half an hour that morning, cause the engineer, conductor, and all hands jumped off the cars and ran down to the balloon. Pegleg Dibley, the Mexican war veteran, was there hobbling around among the rest. He was in such an hurry to get down to the tree he wouldn't go around by the road, but started to take a short cut across the marsh with crowd. And he had a sweet sweatin' time of it too. Now, I can assure you, first his cane would stick, and just about the time he would get that out, down would slide his iron-shod leg fully a foot into the mud and take him there like a scarecrow. Then he would look down to where the people were standing and jerk and swear until the want of breath only would make him let up. He got down there after a while, though. He had to crawl considerable before he could do it. And after he got there, he was bobbing here and bobbing there, trying to get a better look into the tree, until at last he stumbled and fell across one of Dud Davis's young uns. And gin her left leg a compound fracture. She set up a screaming, and he was so weak and frightened he couldn't get up again no how, but lay there grunting and sprawling and kicking his one leg around. The blacksmith was there himself. When he seed his young un down in the mud with her leg broke, you never seed a man so mad in all your born days. He just run and grabbed the old pensioner by the coat collar and slung him more'n fifteen feet, landed him sliding on his back in the mud like a crawfish. About the same time, Tubbs, the cooper, was looking up, and he seed a bough springing up, and he allowed the balloon was coming down. So he started to run and stepped on the foot of Kent's snapping bulldog that was sitting there looking up the tree, thinking there must be a coon up it. The cur whirled round mad and set his teeth into the nighest thing to him, which happened to be old Polly Alien's ankle. But he got more than he bargained for, though, for she was so tough that his teeth stuck there, and she was a-screaming and a-running him, dragging him arter her more'n half the way. I never did see such an exciting time. School was dismissed, and there wasn't a lick of work done in Tuckersfield the whole day. The whole talk was Sam Patterson's balloon, Sam Patterson's balloon. I didn't have to pay a picoon for anything for more'n three weeks. Parson Jones preached a telling sermon about the balloon, and there wasn't standing room in the church. They had to keep the windows open and let people standing on the outside stick their heads in and listen. He likened it first to youth when it was a rolling round in the backyard where nobody seed it, impatient and ambitious to rise, then like unto manhood where it was up, a busting and dropping down again. Next, he said, it resembled old age, 
when it was in rags, a-floppin' around in the tree, more for observation than use. There wasn't hardly a dry eye in the owl meetin' house. Hard-hearted old sinners cried like teething babies. The balloon hung in the tree all summer, and every day there'd be a crowd of people staring at it, like cats at a bird cage. A photographer came the whole way from town and took lots of views of the remains, and one of Frank Leslie's special artists came ratting down there and sat on a stun wall for two days drawing sketches of it. He say it was the most spirited subject he had set eyes on since he sketched the hoop skirt Jeff Davis was captured in. But I'm getting rather dry. Ain't some of your fellas are going to call on the stimulants? End of section four.